We're going to be looking again in John chapter 3 and verse 16. Uh, for God so loved, and um, tonight, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Uh, this text begins with God, and not within just any subject, but within that incredible subject, uh, God so loved. God so loved. Tonight we're going to discuss for a while the object of God's love as it's demonstrated here in this passage. God so loved the world. God so loved the world. Like any uh, message, any, any passage in scripture, there's always a context and this one has one. It's built around the approach of Nicodemus. A man John simply called a ruler of the Jews. And that's really all the introduction that he gets. He came to Jesus by night. And in fact, every time Nicodemus is mentioned in John's gospel, all three occasions, all three times he says, yeah, that's the one that came to Jesus by night. Now, you say, why did Nicodemus come to Jesus by night? We don't know. The Bible never says. If you think that he came to Jesus by night because he was afraid of the Jews, the Bible says that about Joseph of Arimathea, the rich man who was a disciple, but secretly, the Bible says, because of fear of the Jews. Nicodemus might have been just busy, <laughs> had to work late. He might have woke up after hearing Jesus speak, troubled, and went to seek him out. It may have been planned. Some of he and his other rulers of the Jews, we'll talk that in a, in a few moments, decided uh, that he would go kind of as their spokesman. We don't know. The Bible doesn't say. All we know about him is that he was a ruler. That word would have been translated magistrate or leader. Jesus called him a teacher, a master of Israel. The word there is didaskalos, teacher, instructor. Are you a master of Israel and you don't know what the new birth is? Should have known. But we know that he was a ruler of the Jews, a magistrate. He was a person in leadership. For the most part, we conclude that that means that Nicodemus was probably a part of the Sanhedrin Council. Uh, the Sanhedrin Council or court was made up of 71 men, uh, 70 like uh, Moses and his 70, and the one who would serve then as the leader uh, in all of the courts that the Jewish put on place. They always established that there would be an odd number uh, so there could never be a tie. Uh, these men would serve kind of as the Supreme Court of Israel. They were the ones who settled disputes according to the Jewish law. They made decisions. They were subjugated to the Romans, and so there was some limit to their authority. If you ever hear in modern times of uh, uh, a Sharia court, for example... And that might make our skin bristle just a little bit tonight, but I bring it up as kind of an example of how this court had to operate. They were a, a Jewish court. Uh, they made decisions relating to the Jewish law, the law of Moses. They applied those principles. They settled disputes. 
But there was a limit to their authority because ultimately the authority came to Rome. You see that on display uh, when they made a decision about Jesus, but they had to send him uh, on to higher courts to Pilate uh, in order for that decision to be enforced. So there was some authority uh, that they had in Jewish matters, uh, but then uh, their decisions were not always considered binding. Uh, but if you got in trouble with this, folk, this group and you were in Israel, uh, you were in trouble, very serious trouble. So uh, the Bible doesn't specifically say that Nicodemus was a member of that council or court. Uh, that's what it's almost always called, by the way, in Scripture. It's called the council, and that's what it's talking about. Uh, but we do know that he was a part, a party of the Pharisees because he's mentioned in one of those discussions uh, with the Pharisees, and he's called being, uh, the, uh, it's stated that he was one of them. So we know uh, that he was a Pharisee. And he was a, party, a part of what we would have known as the ruling party in Israel during that time uh, because the Pharisees were kind of in charge. Uh, the Sadducees were the other side. Uh, I don't know if they would correspond to uh, any of our political parties today, but one of them was ultra-conservative and one of them was very liberal, uh, the Sadducees. The conservatives were in charge in Jesus' day, so Nicodemus was also a part of that group the Pharisees. He came to Jesus by night. His approach was obviously carefully planned and the message that he brought was very carefully worded. John chapter 3 and verse 2, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. That tells you a lot about Nicodemus' spiritual perception. Because there were a whole lot of people in Israel who saw the signs that Jesus did. But they did not see him as being a man of God. Would not have considered him to have been a rabbi. And certainly would not have said that God was with him. In fact, they said just the opposite. They accused him of being in cahoots with Beelzebub, the Lord of the Flies. They were convinced that uh, he was doing these mighty miracles... By the power of the devil. That's what they accused him of. But not Nicodemus. Nicodemus knew better. He knew that he was a teacher. And he knew that he was sent from God. Because God was with him. There was no way, Nicodemus said. And as he spoke, he spoke for others. We know. We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus was interrupted. We have no idea what else he might have wanted to ask Jesus about because Jesus cut him short. And you remember what he said. Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must be born again. Verily, verily, truly, truly, I say unto you, you must be born again. That's not language with which Nicodemus was unfamiliar. The Jews used that language regularly, but they used it in reference to Gentiles. You see, a Gentile could hear about Israel's God, much like the Roman centurion did, uh, and even Cornelius did. 
They could hear about Israel's God. They could decide that he was the true God. They could decide that they wanted to worship him. They could go to Jerusalem. They could go to the temple. But only to the Gentile court. If they wanted to go further, we want to go on. We'd like to become a priest, perhaps. Oh, no. What would we have to do? It was common. The answer was, well, you'd have to be born again. You'd have to be born all over, you see, as a, as a descendant of, of Abraham. You're, you're not. Uh, your position, as far as your worship of Israel's God, was determined by your birth. So it was not that the terminology that Jesus used was unknown. What blew Nicodemus was away was when Jesus said, Nicodemus, you need to be born again. And when Nicodemus expressed his amazement that Jesus would say such a thing to him, uh, Jesus immediately, of course, points out, Nicodemus, I, I'm not talking about your physical birth. That, that's the way you use the terminology. And you use it because of its impossibility. It's not possible for a man to be born again. It's not possible. Not in the flesh. But Jesus said that which is born of the flesh is flesh. And that which is born of the spirit is spirit. He immediately moved him to the understanding that he was talking about the spiritual birth. Can you imagine what Nicodemus as a master of Israel would have thought when Jesus told him, Nicodemus, you must be born again. You need a spiritual birth. And without it, without it, he said, you will not see the kingdom of heaven. Wow. Remember then that John 3.16 was born out of that situation. Jesus talking to Nicodemus. Not just anybody, but a master of Israel, one of the magistrates, one of the leaders, a teacher of Israel who needed to be saved. Out of that then comes this incredible context and the statement that we'll consider tonight. God so loved the world. You see, this would have been almost as much of a challenge to Nicodemus' thinking as the statement, you must be born again, was. Uh, Nicodemus would have understood that God loved Israel, and rightly so. Look at Malachi chapter 1 and verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi, I have loved you, saith the Lord, yet you say, wherein hast thou loved us? God responds, was not Esau... Jacob's brother, saith the Lord, yet I loved Jacob and I hated Esau and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Now in Luke chapter 14, Jesus employed similar language, verse 26, concerning those who would be his disciples. And he said that if a man did not hate his father, mother, wife, children, brothers, sisters, and yes, even his own life, Jesus said, they cannot be my disciple. That's Luke 14, 26. If you want to read it, I didn't put it in the PowerPoint. Uh, you must, if you're going to be my disciple, you have to hate your father, your mother, your wife, your children, 
your brothers, your sisters, and yourself if you're going to follow me. What did Jesus mean by that? Jesus has employed the language of comparison. Just like God did in Malachi chapter 1 and verse 1. You see, the, the point would be that our love for Jesus Christ in order to follow Him and to be His disciple must be so great that any of our lo other love in our life would almost look like hatred by comparison. And remember in the Jewish way of thinking, love and hate was not so much about how, it, and this is important, love and hate was not so much about how it felt, not about emotions that we feel. It's about behavior, how we treat another person. And you could very easily see then that Jewish mom and dad talking to their son, don't you love me? How can you leave us to go follow this other person? Don't you care anything about us? They see, that was a, a, a very common thing that they had to do because they were expected to be a part of the home place and to take care of their parents. But here they were going off with Jesus and who knew whether they would ever be able to take care of their family or help in the family business. You reckon Peter and Andrew, James and John might have heard that? from their parents when they left the fishing business? Don't you care anything about us at all? You see, love is defined and hate is defined not by how it feels, but by what it does. And you see that again and again in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. Love suffereth long, love is kind, love envieth not, love vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil. What is he doing? He's describing again and again what love does and what love doesn't do, what it keeps us from doing. Love and hate are defined by what they do. In Malachi chapter 1 then, when God said to, uh, to his people through Malachi, I have loved you, I have loved you, and I've hated Esau. Remember that Jacob stood in that passage for Israel. Esau would stand for Edom, the nation that was born after them where Israel was given the beautiful mountains and fertile valleys of the, of the Jordan River, excuse me, Esau, by comparison, was in that wasteland in the Judean desert. God had so lavished love on Israel. He had done so much for them that by comparison, what he did for Esau seemed like hatred. He had blessed Israel. He had done so much for Israel. He had favored them in every way it was possible to favor them. God had loved them, and He had shown that love in extravagant ways. And so what we have here is a text of comparison, of comparative behavior, the way God had treated Israel, how He had lavished blessings on them. But then there was Jacob's brother Esau and their nation. They had not been blessed. Now I could spend a long time in that passage tonight talking about the power of a choice. 
Because you remember that time when Esau sold the birthright. And that was the right to be the spiritual leader of his family for a bowl of beans. And that tells you what Esau thought about the spiritual things of God. They meant nothing to him. And you see that show up in generation after generation after generation after generation in his family. They weren't blessed. They weren't. God's love and God's hatred then put on display in that passage because of the incredible blessings that God had lavished on Israel. So if Nicodemus would have understood had Jesus said, God so loved Israel. But that's not what he said. He said, God so loved the world. And that would have challenged his thinking. But then he went on in the passage and said that whosoever, whosoever, whosoever believeth on him should not perish but have everlasting life. God so loved the world. Whosoever. One would think by now that we're so far removed from the old covenant that there would be no discussion about who the world is or whether whosoever will can or can't. But that's not the case. In fact, if anything, the issue of who the world is in this passage is uh, more controversial today even than it was then. Uh, Taking their cue from the Old Testament and passage like Malachi chapter 1 and verse 1 and many others, uh, the Reformed or Calvinistic approach to Scripture has developed. And they would say that the world in this passage refers only to God's chosen people. And uh, that is, of course, the elect. Uh, The popular John Piper, many others like him, and their reformed thinking uh, will, will say that God chooses who will be saved and regenerates them, that God loves those that he knows are the elect and, and, and that people will actually be saved by God uh, sovereignly by his grace. He regenerates them, then they believe. Their theory even goes so far as to put salvation before faith. That, that's very popular. For whatever reason, this idea uh, that God loves only the elect, that God has a special love for certain people. God loves me, of course. They're always a part of the elect. Uh, that, that idea that God loves me, he, it, it's bad to be you, but God, God loves me. For, for whatever reason, that has been very hugely popular uh, with the millennial generation. It's exploding in their thinking. Some of you I know have read about it. You've seen some of the books and listened to some of the speakers and gone to some of the conferences. Um, not to say that everything these guys believe or teach is bad. I'm just telling you their soteriology, their theory of salvation is messed up. That's kind of more of what I talked about this morning, so I'm not going to harp on it a lot tonight. But it is important for us to understand what the world is in this context. If you looked it up in your Bible program, the world, you will find that none other than John the Apostle used that expression, the world, more than any other writer in the New Testament. 
It is all over, literally, the Gospel of John and even to a lesser extent, but still there in the book of 1 John. He spoke of the world often. And go back to John chapter 1 and verse 8 where the Bible says, He was not that light, but was sent to bear witness of that light. That was the true light which gives light to every man coming into the world. Notice that. Every man coming into the world. He was in the world and the world was made through him and the world did not know him. And so John introduces us to every man and the fact that God gives light to every man coming into the world. Uh, I like to think of that. I mean, every man comes into the world, you're born into it. So in a way, every birth is a tribute, a testimony to the true light of God. And I personally believe that's one of the reasons why the devil loves abortion so much. He loves to snuff them out before they're born. Uh, because everyone that is born uh, receives at least a measure of the light of that creation. Every birth is a testimony to our Creator God. He moves immediately, though, from that to talking about the world. He was in the world, the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. And in this sense, he speaks of how a little baby uh, joins the world <laughs> or discovers the world. Uh, when they do that, they are born and they are part of what we call the human race. They're a part of humanity. Now that world can be spoken of and often is as being in bitter opposition to God and the things of God. The world that doesn't know the God. The world that is lost. Uh, but oftentimes it's used simply in reference to all of humanity. Whether they are saved or lost, it just speaks of them all. Certainly all of humanity uh, was made by God, and Jesus joined that when he came here. He was in the world, the world that was made through him. Uh, but the world did not know him. He goes on, John chapter 1 and verse 11, he came to his own the Jewish people, but his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. He came into his own chosen people, the Jewish people, but they did not receive him. But those who did, to them, gave he the right to become the children of God. Again, I wish tonight that I could just take off and we could discuss at length the incredible truth that John gives to us here. And that is that the Jewish people, though they knew God, though they served God, though they had the law of God, yet they didn't know God. How do we know that? Because when Jesus came, they rejected him. Listen, when they rejected Jesus Christ, that tells us that was proof positive. They were lost. And in fact, Jesus said that. If you would have known me, you would have known the Father. If known me is to know the Father. And, and so the very fact that they didn't know Him meant that they didn't know God. They needed to be born again, just like Nicodemus did. It's a tragedy. But it's also a warning. You can read the Bible every day. You can serve God, pay your tithes, you can go to, go to worship, sing the songs, go through all the motions, and yet not know God. The only way to know Him is to be born again. 
That is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior. John chapter 1 and verse 29, then uh, jumping ahead. The next day John seeth Jesus coming to him and saith, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of what? Of the world. There it is. Who takes away the sin of the world. John chapter 4 verse 42 and uh, this is in his dealings with, with the uh, Samaritan woman and the men of Samaria had believed. They came in verse 42 and said and to the woman, Now we believe not because of thy saying, for we have heard him, that's Jesus ourselves, and know that this is indeed the Christ, the what? Savior of the world. John the Baptist said he takes away the sin of the world. Samaritans called him the Savior of the world. And you say, well, but they were Samaritans. What do they know? Well, 1 John 4, 14. <laughs> and we have seen, this is John, and we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Isn't that amazing? He takes away the sin of the world. He's a Savior of the world. Not once but twice he's called that in Scripture. Now if you looked at that and you didn't think real hard, you might conclude that that means that uh, there is a universal salvation. And many people believe that way. When you see a universalist church out there somewhere, the reason that they are called a universalist church is because they believe in a universal salvation, and that is that all people are going to be saved, and that when Jesus died, He's the Savior of the world. He takes away the sins of the world, that Jesus' death saves everybody, and everybody is going to be saved, regardless of what they believe, what they know, what that is. Universalism is what it's called, and many people... Uh, very devoutly believe that. Um, seems like most country music singers believe that. And, and in fact, they, they believe not only me and you, but our bird dog blue is going to be saved. I mean, everybody's going to go to heaven. That's, it's more popular than you think when you listen. Am I telling the truth? Everybody going to go to heaven. Well... Is that what that says? No, no. Uh, that, that, let me give you another passage. It makes it real clear for us. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 10, Paul said, For to this end we both labor and suffer reproach, because we trust in the living God, who is the Savior of all men. There it is again. But then Paul adds this, especially of those who believe. If you look at our doctrinal statement online on salvation, you will find that Jesus, we believe that Jesus is the Savior of the world, and that is, it is efficacious uh, only to those who believe. It is effective only to those who believe. Those are good words, and it's built basically on this passage because that's what Paul says. Jesus is the Savior of all men. He is the Savior of the world. He takes away the sin of the world. What does that mean? It means that if you are in the world, that is, if you are a member of the human race, then you have the opportunity, 
the same opportunity, the equal opportunity uh, to receive that salvation because Jesus Christ died for you. He is the Savior of the whole world. It also means that He is the only Savior. When it comes to the salvation business, folk, Jesus Christ cornered the market. There is no salvation in any other. In our pluralistic society today, those aren't very popular words, but they're as true now as they've ever been. Uh, you can worship God however you want to, they say. Call Him whatever name you want to, they say. You believe on whatever you want to believe, they say. But this Bible says that He is the Savior of the world. He is the one and only Savior. There is no salvation available through anyone else. There is no forgiveness of sins available through anyone else. Why? Because Jesus is the one who takes away the sin of the world. It also means, then, this passage very quickly tells us that it is effective. That salvation is effective only for those who believe. Believe on who? Believe on Jesus Christ. Not just believe, but believe on Jesus. Now, if this passage, though, and all of these passages that call him the Savior of the world, and John the Baptist telling us that he takes away the sin of the world, uh, 1 Timothy 4 and 10 tells us he's the Savior of all men. If that doesn't teach that all people have the same opportunity, equal access to the same salvation through the same Savior, then I don't know what it does teach. No one is excluded. There's only one Savior. He's the Savior of all men. Regardless of what language they speak, what color their skin might be, there is only one Savior for all men. And it's effective only then for those who believe on His name. In believing on Jesus, we trust in Him and Him alone. It is to take away any kind of self-sufficiency or self-reliance because we know that He is the only means of our salvation. The pluralism of our culture today wants us to go back to Athens where they had deities galore. <laughs> and Paul would in fact tell them that they were too religious. And sometimes in spite of all of America's claim to secularism these days, I'm inclined to tell them sometimes, listen, I think America's too religious sometimes. And they're too religious in the same way that Athens was too religious because Athens wanted to make sure they had all their bases covered. They, I mean, any God they heard about anywhere, well, we want to make sure we get him done, so let's build him an altar. Put a statue up for him. You want a Buddha statue? Fine, we'll get him up there. You want this one up there? Fine, we'll get him. And just in case we've missed anybody, we want to cover all our bases. We're going to put a statue up to the unknown God so we can worship him too. <laughs> Paul picked that one out. <laughs> And he said, I want to preach him to you. The one you ignorantly worship. You worship not knowing how to worship. You worship not knowing who he is. 
the time of that ignorance, that ignorant worship, God had winked at. That is, God, they had much, much bigger problems than the fact that they weren't worshiping God the right way. They didn't know God, and they needed to. And he began to try as best he could to preach to them Jesus, though he didn't uh, uh, speak much, of, 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 didn't call the name of God. He, he spoke of the resurrection and moved along. I think a lot of Americans are that way. They want to cover all their bases, have all the different gods given equal credibility somehow. But Jesus is the Savior of the world. John 14, 17, and, and chapter 14, 15, 16, and 17 will go on to speak of the world again and again and again and again. In fact, uh, if you printed out uh, John 14 and 17 and all the reference to the world, you'd have two or three pages of references just in those chapters. He speaks of them over and over again. You're in the world, but not of the world. He is speaking of them as unbelievers who don't know God, uh, which included, by the way, the nation of Israel. It was their biggest threat at the time. We want to move on then and conclude our consideration of the world tonight by looking at a few other passages out of the epistles. Romans chapter 5 and verse 6 says this, When we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God so loved the world. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. I love 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 15. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptation that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. To save sinners. We could argue, we could put up all the arguments that we wanted to put up tonight and go back and forth between all the differences, that, the way that Calvinists approach these scriptures, the way that we do, and I'm not sure that would do us all a lot of good. But it does do me a lot of good to know that these passages say that Jesus died for us while we were still sinners. Not that he just died for the elect, not that he just died for the ones that he knew about, not just the ones that he died that he had regenerated before they even heard the gospel or believed. And that, that, all of that stuff is not in here. Christ died for sinners. Jesus came into the world to save who? Sinners. Yeah. And I conclude then with 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 3. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved. Who will, God wills, to have all men to be saved and to come under the knowledge of the truth. Now, we don't have a lot of college students here tonight, but maybe you know some. If you've got a college student in your family, somebody going off to college, I want you to warn them. Don't, you let them, don't let them go around and start twisting you around about the will of God and all these kind of things because they're making a lot of things out of it that are real complex. And this passage of Scripture is very plain. God's will is that all men would be saved. I don't need a whole lot more than that. 
I can go a long way with just John 3, 16. God so loved, what? The world. That whosoever, whosoever, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. That's God's will for you in your life. It's God's will in my life. In the fulfillment of that will, God established a church, the New Testament church. He commissioned them. What did He commission us to do? Go into all the world. There it is again. (laughs) And make disciples of who? Of everybody, of every creature. Teaching them, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I'm with you always, even unto the end of the age. This is our task. To go into the world, make disciples, lead people to Christ, bring them to baptism, teach them then the things that God has taught us. This is our primary task. Now that doesn't mean that as churches we can't do a lot of things to show God's love to the world. Uh, we do that. Uh, and we, I mean, the Bible talks about giving to them that ask unto you and and uh, that person that comes to you hungry, don't send him away without feeding him. Uh, uh, that person needs a coat, put a coat on his back. Uh, all those things are in the Bible, aren't they? They are there. Yes, we can involve ourselves in those tasks. We can. But we must not do those things and leave our primary task undone. Because the primary task of the church is not social activity. You understand what I said? The primary task of the church is not social ministry that's not our primary task the primary task of the church is making disciples seeing people saved baptizing them and teaching them teaching them that's what we do and it's important that we do it well I love to talk about an illustration uh, and sometimes I even bring it with me to the pulpit, but I didn't bring it tonight. With that great American institution known as duct tape. Duct tape. You know, a little gray stuff, duct tape. comes in all kinds of brands. You can actually buy duck, D-U-C-K, tape. But it actually was duct tape, D-U-C-T, D-U-C-T tape. It was designed, of course, uh, to tape up ducks, air conditioner ducks. That's what it's made for. You might be interested to know that duct tape is an absolute, complete, and total failure at being a sealant for ducks. It breaks down under heat. It'll fail usually catastrophically within just a couple of years. If you ask the question, what is duct tape good for? Almost everything, <laughs> but not for ducks. Am I telling the truth, Brother Barry? Yeah, he's a HVAC guy. So is Paul. That's the truth? Yeah, not for ducks. It really doesn't bother me that duct tape is no good for ducks. I use it all the time. It has many, many other usages, not the least of which being you can roll it up in a ball and entertain kids with it, you know. <laughs> All kinds of things that duct tape is good for. It doesn't bother me that it's no good for what 
it was designed to do. But you know what? If the church doesn't do what it designs, it's designed to do, that bothers me a lot. And we cannot comfort ourselves if we say, well, look how many people that we do this for. Look, you know, we've got a lot of things we can do, and they're all good things, but we cannot comfort ourselves saying we're doing all these other things, but we're not doing what Jesus Christ commissioned us to do and designed us to do. Making disciples, baptizing them, teaching them. Go into all, yeah, there it is, all the world. All the world. For God so loved the world. Hopefully tonight, just looking at this passage, might remind us a little bit more of what a great opportunity there is. As far as we know, we don't know about what happened before the flood, but as far as we know, there's more people on this planet today than there's ever been before. Human race is larger than it's ever been before. What an incredible opportunity we have. Now let's pray and let's work till Jesus comes. Let's stand together, please.